Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Conduct Detrimental and a big welcome back to me, Daniel Wallach. It's my first uh, appearance on Conduct Detrimental since I think maybe earlier this summer. Joining me today is Zachary Bryson, uh, producer of Conduct Detrimental podcast, and a law student. He's based out of North Carolina. And today we have the pleasure and privilege. And this is one I've been uh, excited about for such a long time. It brought me out of semi-retirement. We have on the podcast joining us right now, the one and only Gary Myers, who just published a book. He wrote a book called Once a Giant, a story of victory, tragedy, and life after football. And if you know anything about me, uh, for whatever my interests are, they probably aren't that varied. Right at the top of the list is talking about 1980s Giants football. That might be the number one topic that you can get Dan Wallach to talk about endlessly. So, Gary, welcome back to the podcast. It's good to see you, Dan. How you doing? Uh, doing well. I became a dad for the first time. You know, I didn't name him after a giant, but uh, he's going to be a big boy. I think he has offensive line potential. With the money football players are making today, you know, why not? Sure. I, I think I want him to cash in on NIL first before uh, I subject him to the rigors of professional football, because as your book highlights, it's not only about championships, guts and glory. You tell the story about the 1986 Giants one of the most celebrated teams in New York sports history. But this isn't uh, a warm remembrance of the glory days. This is a story that brings brings their lives forward and, 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 and discusses and chronicles the trials, tribulations, setbacks, and stories of redemption of so many of the individual members of this team. And uh, I've got to ask you, you know, straight out, I mean, this is a book I've been waiting for my entire adult life, and I'm glad you wrote it. But why did you decide to focus on the 1986 team, given that they won their championship 37 years ago? Why now? Why today? Well, the fact that they won it 37 years ago is exactly the reason why I wanted to focus on them, because I was I was looking for a way to combine uh, a book about life after football, which I think is such a crucial issue these days, you know, with the last 10 years, all the information that we've gotten about CTE but uh, you know I was aware of you know so many more issues for players that are in their 50s and 60s than just CTE not to minimize CTE by any stretch but you know uh, mental health issues financial issues physical issues and I picked the 86 Giants because you know I always wanted to do a book about one of the New York teams and this is my sixth book but the first one about a New York team and it was most iconic. And you being a Giant fan, you know this, that not only was it the best team um, of the Giants four Super Bowl championship teams, but it was the most romanticized, the most embraced, um, strictly because, you know, all the big names are on that team, you know, Parcells and Belichick and Lawrence and Harry Carson and Phil Sims and Carl Banks, Mark Bavaro. And in addition to that, it was their first championship in 30 years. So they broke this three-decade drought of the Giants not winning a championship. And it was just a great team with filled with lots of great personalities. And they were in the right age demographic of the players who were really, you know, going through a lot of challenges of life after football. So, you know, I put it all together and I said, this is the team I want to write about. And I decided early on that I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to approach this subject by, 
you know, cherry picking players around the league from that time period and, and trying to make a, a book out of it that would be much more cohesive just to focus on one team. So, you know, that's what I did. And, you know, in the course of this, you know, I uncovered so many great stories of how this team has really be- became brotherhood, winning the championship together, and which happens with a lot of teams that win championships, Stan. But what really makes them unique is that 37 years later, the bond is as tight as ever. Why have they become so unusually close and connected so long after their playing days have ended? I mean, so many of us in, in our professions, you know, we leave – you know, our jobs, our law firms, newspapers, we may keep a couple of our friends. There's something special about this bond. What What's the linchpin and what, what was the connective tissue that really kept all of these guys bonded so many years later? Is there one person responsible for this or was it just organically developed? Well, you know, Parcells always said that when you win a championship together, it forms a blood kinship. And I think that's really true, you know, of a lot of teams, but it doesn't sustain itself for over 35 years. And I think the reason this one had is one, Harry Carson was the captain and he considers himself captain for life. And he takes that seriously that any player has an issue. The first person they turn to is usually Harry uh, of, of their former teammates. And then Parcells, has transitioned to into a role now that he's completely out of football uh, as the patriarch of this team. And he takes great pride in that his players uh, call him for his birthday. They send him cards on Father's Day. Uh, they, he checks up on them on a regular basis. And he's gone from being a, a, a coach that had a love-hate relationship or his players had a love-hate relationship with him because he drove them so hard but I think in the years that have gone by, they've come to appreciate that he pushed them into their greatest moment of their athletic career, which was winning that Super Bowl 21. And so now all these years later, they feel they also owe a lot to him. And the most important part of that relationship now is that they they feel very um, welcomed by Parcells to approach them with any issue they're having in their lives, whether it's financial or just career advice or you know whether to have that extra knee surgery he, he's there as as i don't want to call him old but kind of the wise old man that they rely on his experiences uh to help guide them through uh this portion of their life well i mean the first chapter of your book is you know i guess uh, very conveniently titled you know segueing into the next discussion uh the parcells savings and loan. I mean, in, in, in many ways, he's acted as a financial lifeline and a, and a bank, uh, a lender for so many players that have, you know, hit rock bottom or have had some kind of financial distress uh, in their lives. I mean, your book does delve into uh, his generosity, uh, which I've never heard of any coach doing something like that. Um, how did did that surprise you given the kind of hard ass he was? I mean, he was a needler. He always had a a gregarious, warm personality, but he was a hard ass yet. He has soft touch and he's 
uh, you know, wants to help so many members of, of, of the team, even though there's no expectation that he's going to ever be repaid on any of these loans. You know, the, the first thing I want to say is that uh, I really appreciate Bill and all the players being so forthcoming with me about some really personal and sensitive topics. And I had no idea that Bill was being so generous financially with his former players. I knew he was always there for advice, but the financial aspect of it, you know, really took me by surprise. And, you know, we were just sitting in his living room in Florida um, in April of last year when I went down to see him. And then later in the day, I met with Lawrence Taylor after he finished playing in Joe Namath's golf tournament. So that was a really good day for me. That's the daily double. I mean, you're in South Florida oh. weather and you're meeting Bill Parcells and Lawrence Taylor at, at opposite ends of the day it doesn't get better than that. And it, and you, yeah. and you get free breakfast at bagel bistro to boot. Yeah. Um, that was probably the most productive day that I've, I think I've ever had in my career, you know, a couple hours with Parcells stopping at bagel bistro to get something to drink and then waiting for Lawrence to finish his round of golf. But this thing about, you know, Bill loaning the money with no expectation of being repaid. Um, that just came in the course of the conversation because it's not like I asked him about it. So I, I didn't know his, the players who have not benefited by that or have not reached out to him about the money had no idea about it either, which is, was really surprising. Like Harry Carson, he just told me the other day that he's learned so much by reading my book you know, especially the part about parcels with the money. Yeah. And he goes, I, I didn't know about that. And I said, well, you know, fortunately for you, you've never had to approach him about any financial hardships, you know, because Harry's done really well for himself after football. But I think Bill knows that when these players come to him with financial issues, that it, it's a matter of last resort because it's embarrassing for them to have to go to their former coach and say, can you help me out and write me a check? You know, they don't want to do that, but, uh, he, he feels he owes a lot to his players and they sacrificed a lot for him. Cause as you said, Dan, you know, he was a real hard ass, you know, those were their days in training camp. Not only did they practice twice a day, but they did it in pads. And, and now in training camp, you know, they're lucky. The coaches are lucky if they can get the players in pads two or three times a week because of all the rule changes during the season, he practiced them in pads at least once a week, maybe more. Now that's unusual. So they they sacrificed a lot physically for him. And, you know, there's no way of knowing um, what impact that specifically had on some of the issues these guys are going through now. You know, football being such a physical sport. And, you know, it's a collision sport. It's, it's high-speed auto accidents on every play. And it, because his practices were so hard and so physical, you know, chances are that there were some you know, repercussions now that uh, the players are, are are facing. But, you know, there's no way to to actually pinpoint, you know, what has caused the problems. But in any event, you know, Bill knows he drove them hard. He knows they sacrificed a lot for him. And if at this point in his life, he's got some money set aside after taking care of, you know, his kids and putting money aside that he needs, needs to live for hopefully the next 40 years. Um, Plus a divorce. A late a divorce, which couldn't have been inexpensive. This is this is right. something he didn't begin earning until his forties and fifties. Right, and well, he got divorced before he took the cowboy job, and I, I don't know anything about this stuff, 
but once the divorce was finalized and I, and then it was sometime after he, um, he signed a four year, $17 million contract with the, uh, with the Cowboys. Now, Dan, you're the attorney, not me. I don't know how that worked into whether any of that future income, uh, was owed to his ex-wife or whether it was all taken care of in the divorce paper. I don't know any of that stuff. Probably not. His, you know what his story was? He's always retiring. Hey, I'm not going to work anymore. Yeah. So maybe as part of any kind of divorce decree, there was no built-in uh, you know, payments for future earning capacity because according to him, there were never going to be any. Yet he took that wow. job and made uh, and a significant amount of money after his divorce. Right. And then he, he wound up going to Miami to work for Wayne Heisinger uh, as basically the team president or the director of football operations, but he had a clause in his contract that if Heisinger sold the team, Bill could walk away and collect the balance of his contract. And so Steve, I think it was a four-year deal, and halfway through it, or maybe not even halfway through it, Heisinger sold the team to Steve Ross, and Bill stuck around for a little bit during a transition period and then left. So he got paid for a couple of years after he had already left Miami. So he did really well for himself from the Dallas years and the Miami years that, um, you know, he, he's got enough money now uh, where he is taking, like I said, taking care of his three daughters. He set aside the money for himself and he, he pushed some to the side that he, in, you know, specifically designated to help his players. And I, I think it's, you know, my book is full of, heartbreaking stories but there's also a share of heartwarming stories and that's definitely at the top of the list and which would really has made this story resonate dan and um you know i i, I use that story on, a, on on wfan here in the city and the new york post you know the, the paper i competed with for 30 years you know picked up what i said on the radio and it, it the story just went viral a couple of weekends ago and what made the story really special is that nobody knew about it. And so, you know, from a selfish point of view, it drew a lot of attention to my book, which is exactly what I, you know, why I do stuff like this podcast with you is I want people to be intrigued enough by some of the stories that I tell that they want to go out and read more. Oh. But that story about Parcells, I, I think changed the perspective of him from this guy, you know, everybody had the image of him, like you said, you know, a really hard driving, hard ass coach to now this guy who turned 82 last month, um, becoming, like I said before, the, the real patriarch of this team. Yeah. Um, I could tell my audience, which consists largely of members of the legal community, law students, practicing lawyers, people in the sports industry. This is hands down the best book about pro sports I've ever read. I mean, it was, it's a long book, a lot of anecdotes, and I knocked it out in just a couple of days, a few hours each day. It was engrossing, and um, I, I just can't recommend it enough. Uh, we could just do a podcast entirely about Bill Parcells, but there are so many other heroes, unsung heroes, as well as some tragic stories followed by redemption. I want to focus on Harry Carson. We'll come back to Mark. I want to I want to go to Bavaro. That's the guy. That was my guy, the guy for whom I've had the most notes in connection with this interview. But Harry Carson really seems like the glue 
behind the, the the togetherness of this team so many years later. And a lot of people aren't going to remember this, but Harry didn't leave the term the team under the best of you know circumstances. Uh, he retired at the end of the '88 season. He had some. Uh, you, your book reveals something I had never heard before that there was a, a a positive you know drug test and he was placed on IR by Parcells so his story is similar to so many other of the players from the 86 Giants like Sims, Bavaro and Joe Morris who left the team not, you know, no it's not forever but the way in which the, the ties were severed by the Giants it surprises me somewhat that they're so affectionate and 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 uh, and so uh, passionate about keeping this bond with their former teammates together. I mean, Harry Carson never got a chance to say goodbye. He didn't play on the 1990 right. team. So, can can you tell us, tell our audience a little bit about Harry Carson's contribution to this, you know, beautiful, you know, story that has endured over 40 years, or almost 40 years. Yeah. You know, he, he was very bitter about how it ended with the Giants because um, he got placed on IR with a knee injury that he didn't feel he should be placed on IR. And as a result, he wasn't in uniform for what would have turned out to be his final home game. And he did play in the final game of the season, which was a Giants stadium against the Jets in 1988. But it was a Jets home game, and the crowd obviously is entirely different. The thing I didn't know about Harry and I've known him since 1978 is that they claim he tested positive at the beginning on, on training camp tests in 1988. And if I was ever going to bet everything I own on any player I ever covered, having never done drugs, it would have been Harry Carson. And to this day, I still think the NFL screwed him over. I don't know how, but I I just don't think that he tested positive or something got messed up with the test. The sample got switched. Harry grew up, um, you know, not drinking, staying away from drugs, um, advising his teammates not to do drugs. And the thought that he would have tested positive is unfathomable. And, um, you know, the the fact that he wasn't suspended because it would have been his first positive, it was kept quiet. I mean, nobody knew except, the, you know, Parcells and whoever else at the team and Harry. But he had a – and he, he thought of challenging it, and I guess he was advised that the odds of winning the challenge was so low that he didn't do it, but he had to be tested, uh, randomly tested that season. And he just talked about the indignity of, you know, having to stand there and pee in a cup with somebody watching him. And, and then the cup was put there with his name on it. And then the next person who was being tested came in. So how much was a secret when the cup with his name on it was there for the next person to see? So he really, you know, really, really resented that. But now, now you spin it forward and, and, and Harry, you know, has taken it upon himself to, to be there for his teammates, you know, Parcells is there financially and then, you know, for life advice, but Harry's there to really dig into the problems. He started a GoFundMe page for Brad Benson. Mm -hmm. 
visited a teammate, Jeff Rutledge, after he had a really uh, serious, you know, life-threatening car accident in the early 2000s. Harry drove. He was visiting his family in Florence, South Carolina. Uh, Rutledge was back in his house in Nashville. Harry drove seven and a half hours, part of it through the Blue Ridge Mountains, um, to go visit with Rutledge unannounced, stayed for a couple hours, got in the car and drove back to South Carolina. I said, well, you know, why would you do that? And he said, I just had to make sure he was okay. And he said, they might've been Parcells' guys, but they were my guys too. Harry's the one who's put together the reunions. I mean, he's really taken this very seriously. And um, I just don't think there are many guys, you know, like Harry Carson. I mean, he gives advice to players on other teams, guys he competed against, guys who are playing now. I mean, he's really somebody that you can really trust and re and rely on. And uh, he has really embraced that role like no other player I ever was around. Can you talk about his Hall of Fame speech? His his assistance transcends just the Giants football team. His yeah, advocacy yeah. from the pulpit of his Hall of Fame acceptance speech led to some important changes and benefits for retired players. Can you talk about what benefits were available to players from the 1980s and what changes he helped uh, contribute to the league and the players association incorporating. Yeah. I mean, at the time that he retired, the, uh, the health benefit, <laughs> excuse me, the health benefits only extended for either a year or 18 months. I have it in the book. I'm, That's insane. That's insane. Play 99.9% .9 of the players leave the game with serious injuries that may be latent and they don't discover these injuries until, you know, maybe later in their lives in their forties and fifties and their health insurance cuts off after one year. Yeah. Um, now it's five years and that change was only made like in the last 10 years. So it's better now, but it's still, you know, insufficient when you, you know, you're right. It, it's, most players don't walk away from the game necessarily needing a lot of medical care immediately, but when they get to their forties, fifties, and sixties, they do. And it's expensive. And um, I know there are some funds this, the NFL has set up, but you know, it's very hard to break through the red tape. And um, a lot of these players are kind of hung out to dry somewhat. Um, now there's been that concussion settlement, it was a billion dollars, I believe. Um, I don't know if how that's being split up or how that's determined or how long it takes to get approved or how long it takes to actually get the payments, but some players are benefiting from that now. But um, so Harry at his Hall of Fame speech, I think it was 2006. Yeah, he, um, he waited way too long. Can you imagine that? Almost 20 years after his career ended, he was passed up for the hall of fame on so many votes it seemed like yeah. it seemed like the like phil rizzuto revisited but unlike rizzuto who was a borderline candidate harry who well, should have been an automatic first ballot hall of famer for the professional football hall of fame and it took him more than 10 years after his eligibility began to make it right 13 years and about a year 11 i believe it was he wrote a letter to the hall of fame asking that his name be taken off the ballot because it wasn't that he was so upset about it. He just felt that it really upset his family every year to get the news uh, uh, wait till next year. 
So you have to wait to five years until you're eligible. Then he waited 13 years to get in. So it was nearly 20 years uh, after his last game that he he finally got accepted, you know, voted in. And that was before I'm on the committee now, but I wasn't on, the, I didn't name to the committee until 2010. <laughs> uh, if I had been on committee all those years, I'd like to think that I could have been persuasive enough that Harry would have gotten in a lot, a long time before then, but you never know. Um, Anyhow, so his speech, which he ad-libbed, uh, it was all about the NFL and the Players Association taking care of the players who set the foundation for what the game had become. And it's not anything now then what it is now just in terms of, you know, the revenue that's brought in now is close to $20 billion a year. You know, back then it was just a fraction of that. And um, they weren't taking care of the players you know, to anybody's satisfaction. So Harry dedicated his entire speech to you have to take care of the players that made the league what it is today. You can't forget about them. And um, I, I think that went a long way. That was the first time anybody had really spoken about, spoken out about what is such a crucial issue and what gave me the motivation to write my book was life after football. And you know, the NFL is a use them and then chew them up and spit them out league, a league of replaceable parts. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as you're not productive anymore, team gets rid of you. You know, maybe you can catch on somewhere else and and, yeah. and extend your career for a couple of years. But it is a league of replaceable parts, which is why players do everything they can to stay on the field. And in those days were hiding concussions because they didn't want the next man up to take their job. So H- Harry really... Uh, shined a light on on this terrible thing that was going on where the former players were being forgotten, those that really needed help. And I, I give him all the credit in the world for, I mean, that was a controversial speech uh, at that time. And to use the the forum of, of his Hall of Fame speech and, and just talk about that and not about, you know, his accomplishments during his career, I thought I thought that was that was Harry. Uh, and people learn that was that's who Harry is. And uh, I have great admiration for him. Let's talk about a few other players who were unceremoniously disposed of as replaceable parts. Who should be in the Hall of Fame, by the way, and no player personifies that better, in my opinion, than number 89, Mark Bavaro. And for Giants fans of a certain vintage, he was a very taciturn individual i mean i remember on media day at the 1987 super bowl he remained on the team bus and fine for it i recall what was your experience like talking with mark bavaro who all of a sudden has become uh uh the life you know sort of a, a very verbose talkative friendly you know person can you tell me what his transformation was like and what he's experienced subsequent to his playing days yeah you know i asked him about um uh, staying on the team bus that day it's actually a funny story in those days it was called photo day now it's called media day well actually it's media night because they put it on monday night so they can put it on primetime tv but uh, which might be like two of the worst hours of television, of football television <laughs> all season is that media day thing. But in any event, 
So uh, it was called photo day because they took the team picture, but that was only part of it. It's not, it wasn't what it is today with, you know, thousands of media people, but there was still a pretty big crowd. It was really, you know, group interview day. But Mark, who hated talking to the media, you know, took it literally and said it was photo day. So he took the team picture and sat on the team bus <laughs> and waited for everybody else. I don't I don't know if he got fined. Maybe he did. But um, he was just taking that was just typical Bavaro from that period of time because it just wasn't him. He wasn't at the, at the point in his life that he wanted to share a lot about himself. I mean, he was a mystery to a lot of his teammates. So you can imagine that he was a super mystery to the media, you know, three word answers. And um, I mean, he was as good, if not better, a player than than Gronk. He was Gronk before Gronk in terms of the style of play and the production without the sideshow. Yeah. Um, his he teammates love him. He could block. Uh, he took Reggie White on, you know, one on one. He was he was equally adept as both a pass catcher and uh a blocking tight end. I mean, just a, a, a two, you know, he had both skills and I'm still in my imagination, just envisioning the Sims to Bavaro scene pass down the middle. I mean, that was like a patented yeah. hookup. And if there was any one player on that team that, uh, that I would want besides me, beside me in a foxhole, I would choose Bavaro above anybody else. And there are so many to choose among, but he's the one that stands out as the one player you could count on more than anything else. And it just broke my heart. That was the one, there were, there were three stories in particular that choked me up. Um, Bavaro's Bobby Johnson and Curtis McGriff. We'll, we'll come to their stories in a moment, but he hasn't had, Bavaro has not had as, uh, you know, successful, uh, you know, post-career life as he had while he was a player. And even as a player, the injuries derailed what undoubtedly was on a fast track to the Hall of Fame. And I think he still logged enough accomplishments to be in the Hall of Fame. At least if you ask me, Bill Parcells or Bill Belichick, I think I would rank me third in that in that pecking order. But for anyone who saw him play, forget the statistics, forget how many years he played. You just knew it. You were watching greatness. And it may have been a flashing comet. But that was still six years of football on two championship teams played by a tight end that was the class of the NFL during that important era in the National Football League. And it just bothers me so much that he's never up for serious consideration from the Hall of Fame. I don't think you could have a Hall of Fame without a player like him. He was one of the best tight ends that has ever played. And then to compound, to compound that disappointment, He's gone through a lot of struggles health-wise in recent years. And your your book delves into you know, a lot of that. And I was just shocked at the end when I, when I saw the photo in the, in, the, in the last few pages of the book showing that he had two black eyes as a result of falling down in his house on consecutive days. Can you, can you, you know, inform our audience a little bit about some of the difficulties that Mark has gone through? Dana, I think he epitomizes the blue collar mentality of that team and of New York. You know, just a hardworking guy um, who put his head down and, and did what he was supposed to do. I mean, knee, terrible knee injuries really prevented him 
from being a Hall of Famer. And I, I don't disagree with you that he deserves to be in there. It's just the the brevity of the career has worked against him because of the knee injuries. And the Giants did not treat him well uh, at the end. And it's it's too complicated and long to get into. But since everybody who's watching this is going to go out and buy the book, they can they can read about um, um, how the Giants really, you know, got – uh, did the wrong thing with him financially uh, after his knee gave out on him. Now, he did wind up continuing his career in, in Cleveland and Philadelphia, but he was not nearly the same player. But the, the story you're referring to is you know, he, he got COVID um, mm -hmm. in, um, in 2021. I'm trying to get my timeline right here. Yeah, 2021. Um he had not yet gotten the vaccine because he wasn't eligible for his age group at that point. Uh, it was on Easter Sunday and his daughter and her husband and their baby came over. And the next day they tested positive. And within a couple of days, Mark started not feeling well. And um, it really took a tremendous toll on him. His wife who uh, finished up her law degree at Harvard um, and is a very bright woman you know, believes the virus attacked his brain and um, because she believes her, his brain was vulnerable from all the concussions that he suffered during the course of his career. It didn't go to his lungs. She thinks it attacked his brain, which contributed to him fainting first on his kitchen floor. And then the next night he was getting up to go to the bathroom and he fell face first on his marble floor in the bathroom. And looked down there was just this tremendous pool of blood um and you're right the picture is haunting that he he gave me that picture which just showed how open and forthcoming he was with me that he allowed me to use that picture in the book which i really appreciate because i think it obviously illustrates uh, you know what he went through during that period of time but he um he had a horrible time getting over it he was going through depression anxiety paranoia uh real suicidal thoughts you know, he had two teammates, Dave Dewerson, who played, they played together at Notre Dame and then with the Giants in 1990. And then Andre Waters, who was in Philadelphia when Mark finished up his career there. He got to know Junior Seau through a mutual friend, Burt Grossman, who played on the Chargers. And all three of those players committed suicide. And because you can only be uh, diagnosed with CTE posthumously, um, it, it was later determined that's what they had. And, and Mark would, would think, you know, how can these players reach the level of despair that they would end their lives when they had families? And how could it have been better not to be there than to be there with their wife and kids and friends, et cetera? Why would they give up on their lives? And he just could never come to grips with how that can happen. And then he found himself in the same situation thinking, that he was hoping he'd have a heart attack or just that he would just die because the turmoil and the torment that was raging in his head was overwhelming him. And he had a, like an internal argument between his intellectual side and his emotional side, the intellectual side saying, Mark, you have too much to live for. You're going to work your way through this. And the emotional side saying, for how long can you stand on the edge of a cliff without jumping? 
And, wow. you know, fortunately, you know, after six or six months or so and going to numerous doctors, he got the right um, uh, combination of meds that calmed, his, calmed him down. And, you know, fortunately, you know, he came out the other side of this. He's he's doing really, really well. I don't know that he's 100 percent or that he ever will be, but, you know, he's certainly doing a million times better than he was uh, during that six month period of time. And when I met with him in, in, I think it was February of 22, uh, he was, uh, if you didn't know what he went through, I wouldn't have questioned him on it. So he was doing really well, but he's another one. And I'll have to say this. I said, this at the very top, Dan, these players were incredibly forthcoming with me about, such sensitive things and such personal things in their life, you know, knowing it was going to go on a book, which is about as close to a permanent record as you can have in the media. And um, with some of them, I really expected days after the interviews to get phone calls from them saying, you know, what? remember that part I told you about that or that, you know, I, I really appreciate if if you don't use it. And then I would have had a real dilemma because all my conversations were on the record mm -hmm. and you know some of these great stories i certainly wouldn't have wanted them to backtrack on you know giving it a second thought but there wasn't one player or coach who in a follow-up call with me most of which all of which i initiated nobody ever called me and said i have second thoughts i would just call them because hey you need to fill in a blank here just so I make sure the story is, is totally accurate. Um, you know, can you just give me a little more information here? And so they had opportunities if they wanted to, to, to backtrack on it. And, and none of them ever did. I mean, some of them, I have to be honest with you. I, I was hesitant to make follow-up phone calls to them uh, on some facts that were missing because I didn't want to give them the opportunity to say, you know, I, I really thought about this again. I, I'm afraid about my kids reading this, and it it that never came up. So I'm I'm really appreciative of, of that. And you know, certainly if they had asked me not to write it, I would have respected them enough that if they told me it was going to be really damaging to them, I, I wouldn't have written it. And and that's because of these relations, and that's part of the reason I was able to get them to say all these things is because I had relationships with these guys as they knew. Um, <clears throat> whereas I didn't always write positive things about them during their playing career. They, they knew I never had an agenda and uh, I, I never wrote anything negative about them because it was a personal thing. It was just because I was doing my job. So, uh, I mean, I know that I kind of got off on a tangent here, but I think it's really important for people who read this book to understand that, you know, it's very unusual to get one player to tell these kind of stories about themselves, but every player I talked to did. And like, like you said, Dan, there's a, a lot of really heartbreaking stuff in here, but it is balanced by the heartwarming stuff with Parcells and Harry, and some of the really funny stuff that happened in 1986 that goes a long way to answering you know, had they become a brotherhood? Well, they were pulling practical jokes on each other all the time, and nobody was immune from that except for Lawrence because they were all afraid of him. But everybody else was fair game, including Parcells.
Yeah, you mentioned uh, how difficult it was to get some players to open up to you, particularly those that may have been criticized, you know, during some of your you know writing and some of your columns. Nobody typifies that more, I think, than Bill Belichick, with whom you had um, an up and down relationship over the years, uh, in part because of you know some of the some of the Spygate uh, articles that that you wrote. Uh, but unlike so many of the others, Bill Belichick's contribution differed in that he didn't sit down for an interview with you, but may have been the most forthcoming in terms of anecdotes and stories. Can you can you tell us a little bit about how you got Bill Belichick, who doesn't do projects like this very often, how you got him to participate in the telling of the story of the 1986 Giants? And I think it speaks to his affection for where he began his career. And for those that may not remember, he was a, a just a top defensive coordinator. I can't, I can't even, uh, it, it just seemed like every time the Giants were having difficulties defensively in the first half, he made adjustments time and time and time again. I said that they were halftime adjustments. You, you, you chronicled them as he made adjustments even earlier than that. And uh, I mean, he's one of the, you know, I don't think he could write the, the history of the 1980s Giants without speaking about Belichick's contributions, but he's gone on to bigger and better things in his career. How did you get him to, to come forward and participate in the telling of their story? Yeah, you know, one, one thing I just want to clarify when you, you said, and, and you, this is a great topic in the book, but when you said early on that, you know, I worked hard to get them to be so forthcoming. The most surprising thing about my interviews with them is that it wasn't hard. Is I just threw the questions out there and they they just opened up. I mean, I didn't really have to probe that hard to get them to um, to tell me these stories. And I, I like to think I'm a good interviewer, but I, I also think that a lot of these guys wanted to tell this story. As far as Belichick, you know, we we never had a close relationship. I mean, we still don't really at all. Um, it's, it's just that we had a, a contentious relationship for a long time because I was very critical of him uh, after Spygate and during Spygate about his cheating, which I thought was reprehensible because the league had warned him so many times that what he was doing was wrong. Um so we didn't really speak for about 15 years other than when I would ask him a question at a press conference and he would begrudgingly give me an answer. But we sat next to each other at a, at a hall of fame meeting in Canton in January of 2020. It was for the, on the centennial committee, which is separate from the regular committee that I'm on. We were just picking a lot of senior players and contributors. And so they formed this committee of 25 that half of it was made up of our regular committee and then other people like Belichick and Polian and Ron Wolf and Carl Peterson, uh, the late Gil Brandt uh, was on that. Um, so it turned out, you know, it's, it's a horseshoe type table. And I went up, I sat down first and there was a notebook next to me and I didn't know who it belonged to, but it, there was nobody sitting there at that point. And it turned out it was part, it was Belichick. And I said, oh, boy, this could be uncomfortable for eight hours if we don't talk to each other the whole time. So I just broke the ice and and stuck out my hand to shake his hand and and say hi to him. Now, just a couple of days earlier, he had the Patriots had been eliminated by 
Tennessee in the wild card game, which turned out to be Brady's last game for the Patriots. Now, if if the Patriots won that game, most likely Bill would not have been mm-hmm. at that meeting in person. He might have done it by Zoom or whatever. But the fact that they lost that game, he was available to be in Canton. So we really had, and I don't think I'm, I don't like to talk for anybody else, but I think he would agree that we really had a good time that day kind of chatting back and forth, him asking me questions about the process, me asking him questions about some of the players that I didn't really know a lot about, but he had already studied on tape. I mean, he's really great historian of the game. And then we were just telling some other stories during the breaks. And, you know, since that point, um, I've just had like a nice email relationship with him. I always wish him luck at the beginning of a season. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the Hall of Fame process, I'll I'll write to him and I'll say, you know, you know, here are the 12 seniors who are our finalists. If you had a vote, can you rank them for me? And he'll do that, which is very helpful for me. But, you know, I never would use his name. It, it's a, we have an understanding that it's off the record, which is fine, you know, but I'm always um, interested in his opinion because I respect him so much. And um, so when it came time to do this book, I, I knew I had to get him because he was such a crucial part of it. And uh, so I wrote him an email, of course. And uh, I said, listen, I'll come up and meet you mm-hmm. training camp at the end of your day at two o'clock in the morning. Or if you start your day at 6 a.m., I'll be there at 6 a.m. or any time in between. And he wrote back, I really want to help you, but uh, I'll be much, I'll give you much better answers on email. And uh, Dan, I mean, I didn't want to do that. Almost all my interviews for this book were in person. A couple of them I did on Zoom when it wasn't logistically possible for me to be doing it sitting across a table or whatever from from who I was interviewing. And, you know, I I expressed to Bill, like, I really like doing these things in person. And, And he just told me, he says, I promise you I'll give you better answers if we do it by email. And I said, all right, you know, I'm just interested in the best material for my book. And if you think that your answer is going to be better that way, you know, and I, I figured if I sat with him in his office, he'd give me 20 minutes and be looking at his watch. If I said, you know, just answer him by email. And I said, I don't need the answers for four months. And this was like July. I said, just get it back to me, October, November, whatever, because I'm not going to actually start writing until January. I was still in the interview period the research period. And, I sent him 15 questions and he sent me back a 2,500 word document uh, with very thoughtful answers. Every sentence, every word counted. I mean, that's how he is. And it was great. And the only question he didn't answer, I mean, we had an agreement. I wouldn't have asked him any questions about the Patriots. And I didn't want to ask him any questions about the Patriots because this book is about the Giants. The only thing I asked him he didn't want to answer was I said, how would you how would you compare the 86 Giants to whatever you consider to be your best Patriots team, which I thought, even though they didn't win the Super Bowl, was clearly the 07 team that was undefeated that lost to the Giants that year on a, on a really fluke play, you know, the Tyree catch. And I said, I'm just looking to compare eras, not looking for you to pit, you know, the Giants versus the Patriots. And he gets right back, I don't know. And it was kind of the equivalent of we're on to Cincinnati. You know, he's, the, the um 
the answer that he gave that he he just didn't want to touch it. And now I respected that. I didn't press him on that at all because the other 14 answers were tremendous. And I think I might've used every word um, of his quotes in the book. It somehow or paraphrase some of them because his answers were, were just so good. Yeah. Um, that I, I And be because he doesn't participate in these projects, I felt it was important to, to really highlight uh, the things that he said. And he was just tremendous talking about his affection for that team and the organization and what he learned from Parcells. And he was very respectful of Parcells in his answers, even though they went through a really rough period where they weren't talking to each other because of how the way, because of the way it ended with the Jets. But now I think that their friendship, they never had a friendship. It was always a working relationship. But now I truly think for the first time they have a friendship and they, they get along better with each other than uh, maybe at any point that they ever have. Yeah, one of the great disappointments in my lifetime as a Giant fan is not only did Bill Parcells not come back and return to coach the team, even though he had several opportunities, 93, 97, but Bill Belichick was available in several of the junctures when the Giants were looking for a new coach. And look, I'll, I'll say that it's just puzzling to me that the two greatest coaches that were ever on the sidelines for the New York Giants never got the opportunity to return to the scene of their greatest triumphs. And a lot of that I'll put on George Young, who is it was around for the entirety of the, of the Bill Parcells era. But he, I wouldn't say he's one of the villains of the book. But he doesn't come out looking too good. He, you know, um, he tried to undermine Parcells and didn't think that Bill Belichick had the makings of a of, of a decent head coach. Can you talk about, you know, the tension that existed between Parcells and Young and Belichick and Young and that dynamic that may have set back the Giants franchise by a decade or more because of his stubbornness? in not wanting to um, hire or rehire either of those two legendary figures. Yeah. I mean, that's there's a lot to the story. Um, and he also passed up Reggie white in the 84 supplemental draft. I'll never <laughs> forgive him for that. Can you imagine uh, Lawrence and, and Reggie together on the same defense? I mean that, and, and Parcells wanted to take Reggie. George took Gary Zimmerman who didn't want to play in New York and he wound up trading him to the Vikings for two second round picks. Um, but anyhow, when you mentioned Parcells and Belichick, the two greatest coaches ever to be on one step, Lombardi and Landry weren't bad either, except neither one of them was the head coach when they, when they coached together with the giants. So I would give the edge to Parcells and, and, and Belichick. Well, George Young hated, and I don't think that's too strong a word, uh, that was how he felt about Belichick. Uh, he just just didn't like him, didn't, you know, Belichick was in an interesting time in his life then. He, you know, he was really looking to make a name for himself. And he just didn't, he didn't portray an image of a guy that you think was going to be a great head coach because he was just not a great communicator. At least he wasn't with the media. And I don't think he was with George either. And I don't think George could envision him standing in, up in front of a team 
uh, and having a commanding presence. And I don't think he liked him as a person. So towards the end of the 90 season, when Tom Coughlin was going to be hired by Boston College and and there were lots of rumors about Belichick going to Cleveland, Parcells told me, I didn't know this story, Parcells told me this for the book, that um, he went to George and he goes, do you want me to do anything I can to keep either one of these guys or both on the staff for next year? And And George told him no. Now, I don't know if Parcells knew right then that he was going to be leaving in May of 91. But by the time he left, you know, Coughlin was in Boston College and, and Belichick was in Cleveland. So the decks were cleared for George to hire and promote Ray Hanley. Oh, no. If there was ever a coach who was most similar to George, it was Ray Hanley, just because they were both, you know, acad academia type people, if that's the right word. You know, George was um, a former high school history teacher and and um, and Hanley was very cerebral. Um, he, he was invaluable to Parcells on the sidelines because he had an amazing mind for numbers and was yeah. this clock management guy. But, yeah. you know, he was just a running back coach, not to minimize that job, but he would never been, had never been a coordinator. And yeah, I, I, nobody, nobody ever covered the Giants said, okay, Ray Hanley is going to be, you know, the uh, coach in waiting either for the Giants or anybody else. You know, we didn't ever look at them like that, but. That was so, uh, wasting two years, two prime years of the Bill Parcells era Giants, 91 and 92. And uh, yeah. I think that point is underscored when you consider how successful Re Dan Reeves was in the 93 season with so many of the Parcells players, you know, uh, you know, Mark Collins, Greg mm -hmm. Jackson, Myron Guyton, Phil Sims. Uh, they had many of the same players, Meggett, and it's just so heartbreaking and frustrating as a Giants yeah. fan to see those two seasons, 91 and 92, go down the tube. And we haven't even talked about the violence that was done to Phil Simms' career and Hall of Fame chances by coaching decisions and choosing other quarterbacks over Sims. And he lost four or five years. He lost six years of what should have been a Hall of Fame career because of a multitude of injuries and coaches selecting other quarterbacks over Sims to start the season. He lost, essentially, he left 20,000 yards on the sidelines by not participating in those six seasons. Uh, and it's just so frustrating to me that you know, there's, so, there's so many things we talked about today. There's enough material for a book. Yeah. Oh, wait, we have... wait, wait, wait a second, wait a second. We're drawing close on time close on time. I know it's like one minute before you have to run, but if you stay if yeah. you want to stick around, let me know. But I have to ask this question. We haven't talked about him yet. Would there even be a book without the great number 56, Lawrence Taylor? Because when you think yeah. about this, none of this would have ever happened if he had been drafted by another team, and you were almost responsible for that. Yeah. Um it's nothing I apologize for, but I, I do point it out in the in the epilogue that when I was covering the Giants in um, uh, 1981 and the Giants had the second pick in the draft, it was clear that the Saints were going to take George Rogers first. And the Giants were very lucky that Bum Phillips was now the coach with the Saints and Earl Campbell had been his guy in Houston, and he looked at George Rogers as his new Earl Campbell. I think just about any of the other 
There were 28 teams in the league at that point. I think just about every other team would have taken Lawrence first. But anyhow, the, I went to the locker room the Friday before the draft, which was held on Tuesdays in those years. And one of my guys in the locker room said, you should talk to the defensive players because they're really upset. You know, there's been rumors about how much the Giants are going to pay Lawrence Taylor as a rookie. And it was like twice as much as any of the veterans were going to make. So I went to talk to three or four of the defensive guys who I was friendly with. And they told me that they were planning on um, uh, boycotting training camp in, in protest of what they heard Lawrence was going to make. And um, so I read a story in that Sunday paper, you know, giant veterans threaten walkout or threaten not to show up or what the headline said. And um, and I had a lot of players, you know, quoted off the record about that. And it was the big headline across the back page of the Daily News that Sunday. So, of course, you know, Lawrence and his agent was Mike Trope, who was a very, very prominent agent in those days, got very upset that Lawrence fired off a telegram, shows how long ago this was, to uh, to Ray Perkins, who was the Giants coach, and imploring him not to to draft him. He says, I don't want to go somewhere where I'm not welcome. And uh, I can't quite remember if Trope did the same with George Young, but I know that Lawrence said that to um to Perkins and you know the, to the Giants credit they weren't going to be scared off by this in fact they probably would have welcomed that defense walking away and you know Giants were so bad they could have just started over and just built the whole thing around Lawrence which is eventually what they wound up doing but a lot of the veteran players called Lawrence on that Monday the day before the draft and told them that uh, it was nothing personal you know, they were in his corner, get as much money as you can. But their protest was about the Giants, how they were being treated by the Giants and how much money they were making. And that if Lawrence was going to raise the bar on on salaries, that they wanted to benefit from that as well. You know, guys who were make, you know, making $150,000 and had made the Pro Bowl a bunch of years. And now this rookie was going to come in and make twice as much. So they, they convinced Lawrence that... Um, they it was nothing personal against him, but basically they were protesting how they were treated by the organization. So then he, you know, reached out to Perkins and said, and, and told him what happened, that he was fine with the Giants drafting him, and um, and that's what happened. But um, you know, I don't know how close it could have come to the Giants not wanting to get involved in a situation like that if Lawrence didn't back down, but. Um, the whole situation did come about because of that story I wrote. And I know, listen, I, I know that my competitors at the time, you know, were downplaying it or mm -hmm. I even heard, I'm not going to name his name, but I, I heard a guy on the radio that evening, and this is stuck in my head. He was being interviewed on the Fordham University radio station, which was one of the few sports talk shows anywhere in the country at that point. So people did listen to it, and I, I heard the post, uh, New York Post beat writer laughing about my story on the radio. While to this day, some of those players have told me that they were really serious about boycotting training camp, and it wasn't like a ploy or anything like that. So I wouldn't have written that story unless I knew those players were really serious, because I didn't want to be used 
Yeah. And uh, and the guys that were telling me that were some of my best sources on the team. So I believed them. And I think Lawrence did raise the bar there that eventually some of those players started getting paid what they deserved as yeah. far as market value. The money then in those days wasn't obviously anything like it is today. I think the most Lawrence made in the season ever was in his final year in 93, made $2.8 million. Can you imagine what Lawrence Taylor would make today? I, mean, uh, I think he would easily be a $50 million, $40 million a year player. If you're giving Daniel Jones $40 million a year, uh, what's the greatest defensive player in football history worth? I mean, Donald Trump gave him, you know, gave, gave, you know, signed him to a futures contract. That's another yeah. story. But this is the best defensive player of all time, which leads me into segues into the final question before we uh, sort of promote any upcoming appearances. I could talk to you all day, Gary. This is uh, this is a lot of pent up, you know, Giants football talk that I've kept, you know, buried for so many years. And I'm so energized by your book. But you spoke about the financial uh, aspects of other players being jealous that they would be eclipsed by Lawrence Taylor. And obviously you're referring to Brad Van Pelt, maybe Carson, Brian Kelly, but there are other players that might've had a grievance because this was during the pre-free agency era. So many good players missed the boat on free agency and ended up being buried behind star players for so many years because of the absence of true free agency. So are the 1986 players were members of the team bitter over their lack of financial remuneration and or fair opportunities now that free agency has raised the ceiling on player salaries. And you know who has a right to be bitter about that? Guys like Andy Hedden and Byron Hunt, who are stuck behind LT and Carl Banks. And can you imagine what their careers may have looked like had free agency existed? What about Jeff Hostetler? He was a highly decorated quarterback at West Virginia University, and he had to sit on the bench for seven years. For six mm -hmm. years before he got his shot, he was he was on the punt team and he he would be like a, a an occasional wide receiver. He had to sit there, even though um, it was later shown that he was a, a a true number one quarterback who had fantastic years with the Oakland Raiders. And without Hostetler, they may not even win the 91 Super Bowl. So are the players bitter about that, given how many hardships that so many of them are facing financially in, 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 in recent, recent years? Well, I mean, obviously there's nothing they can do about it. It was just, just the way it was back then. And, you know, Hosteller eventually got to take advantage of free agency when he, when he signed with the Raiders. But um, I, I think a lot of them obviously wonder mm -hmm. um, how much they could have made if free agency existed uh, in 1986, coming off a Super Bowl, if, if their contracts were up, you know, a lot of guys had to hold out during training camp to get what they felt was what they deserved, which still was only a fraction of what it was, what it would be today. But you also have to remember in, in the first year of free agency, the salary cap was like $34 million. And, and now it's, it's over 200 million, if I'm correct. Um, Wow. So even even the players back then in the beginning of free agency weren't making anywhere near what they're making today because the revenue the league is taking in has changed so dramatically, mostly mm -hmm. because of the television contracts. Yeah. So, you know, even the players at the beginning of free agency, say you, you look at the players in the 1990s, you know, are they bitter? Because, you know, play, quarterbacks are now making 
you know, $50 million a year, that's the new standard. Uh, are, are they, you know, do they, do they feel, I mean, they all feel like you were born too early, obviously, mm -hmm. because they, you know, what you play one year in the league pretty much as a first round pick and you can be set financially for life. Yep. Um, you know, these first round picks are getting, you know, $20 million guaranteed. Mm -hmm. Now, um, Sam Bradford, I believe, was in the last class, draft class, before they put in the like the rookie salary cap, and he had fifty million dollars guaranteed in in his contract, which was you know unbelievable. Now um, there's a sliding scale based on where you picked, but all the first round contracts are, are totally guaranteed. So if you picked first, maybe you you have now it's up to like 30 or 35 million guaranteed mm -hmm. if they didn't have the system and Sam Bradford got 50 million and that was more than 10 years ago you know what would be up to now for a quarterback who gets picked first overall but yeah. in, in any event as far as the players from the 86 Giants being bitter not one of them expressed that feeling to me I mean they they kind of laughed about how much they could have made I mean I asked Lawrence that question and he said, you know, they would have had a name at Giants and Taylor Stadium <laughs> because they would have had him so much. He, he just would have been a partner in the franchise. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. I mean, um, I made more at the end of my career than I made at the beginning. Well, obviously, I had a lot of experience, but they were starting people at the Daily News at, at a lot more than I started at, you know, <laughs> 30 years ago. So... I mean, that's what you hope happens is that as the years go on and that you start making more money, even entry level jobs. But the, the difference in money now is just so drastic and enormous that you would think players would be better. But I think they just kind of shrug their shoulders at it and go, yeah, you know, it would have been nice. That kind of thing. Yeah. Well, so, so many stories. I think there's enough for several books. Certainly you could do a podcast series on the 80 giants, 80s giants and have enough material for six or seven seasons. Maybe I've just given you an idea. Uh, but once a giant, a story of victory, tragedy and life after football uh, by the great Gary Myers, who's covered the National Football League since 1978. He's written for the Dallas Morning News, New York Daily News, New York Times bestseller, Brady versus Manning. Uh, can you tell our audience how they can order the book. Yeah, I mean, it, it came out uh, on September 12th, so it's available in all the bookstores and uh, certainly on Amazon website, Barnes & Noble website, any of those services that you, that you use to get your books. You know, it's available now and you can get it pretty quickly. And then um, on October 22nd, before the Giants play the Commanders at MetLife Stadium, now I have to say, I never heard of the Giants allowing anybody to do this, so I'm really honored. I asked them if I could do a book signing before a game uh, on the plaza level, um, right inside the gates as people come in. So uh, I'm going to have different Giants rotating with me that day. For, for now, I know for sure that Leonard Marshall and Jim Burt will be with me, and hopefully uh, Carl Banks can pull himself away for some of his pregame radio duties to sit with me for 15 minutes. So as you come into the stadium – you can buy a book and you can get it signed by some of these uh, all-time greats from the 86 Giants. And um, Dan, I just, I'll just leave you with this thought that although this book is about the 86 Giants, it's really about 
1980s players in the NFL. Um, the stories that these players tell could be the stories that 1986 Cowboys tell or the Broncos or the Seahawks. And you, you know, pick your favorite team. Because the, the stories might be different, but the issues are not unique uh, just to the 86 Giants, obviously. All the players from that era are experiencing very similar things. So I just chose this team to talk about their experiences, but it's really the experiences of all their colleagues uh, from that time period. And I, I think it's it's definitely the best book I've ever written. I also think it's the most important book. And in some ways, it's the most fun book because the, the funny stuff in there is really, really funny. But the sad stuff is also really sad, which is why I tell people it's got heartbreaking and heartwarming uh, stories in there, which was a tough balance to try to to navigate. But, uh, you know, hopefully I did it well. You contributed so much to the telling of the story of these legendary figures that it's such an important book that needed to be written. And if you hadn't done it, no one would have ever known the gravity of it. And I think this has... Uh, this will have uh, a long-lasting appeal, not only to Giants fans, but I think it crosses over into the realm of, uh, you know, as you mentioned, fans of any team, sports fans. It's it's a real human interest story, and you tell their stories so um, effectively, and they're heartbreaking at times. Uh, we didn't even get to Curtis McGriff and Bobby Johnson. Um, the, 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 say or, something yeah i urge you i urge everyone in our audience to buy this book it is truly I, I don't read too many sports books this one was a page turner if i guess you could say that about kindle but it was it was just a tour de force one of the best books on sports i've i've read in my entire life and i can't thank you enough gary for uh, joining us on Conduct Detrimental, and I'll throw a, a South Florida invitation to you to extend the book tour to South Florida. Maybe we could get Bill Parcells out of Jupiter and Lawrence Taylor out of Broward County, and maybe we could do a maybe we could do a a, a book signing or an appearance at, at a racetrack. That might be a way to lure Bill Parcells. Uh, um, th that sounds great. I've actually spoken to Bill a little bit about. Um, how there's so many giant fans in South Florida that when the giants play the dolphins, it is actually more, it seems mm -hmm. to me there's more giant fans than dolphin fans. And so we're, we're, let's say we're in negotiations on whether I can get Bill to do something like that. I, hopefully he will, but I have thought about that and um, I'll definitely get in touch with you to let you know. For yeah, sure. it'd be great. It would also be a potential fundraiser as well. Imagine that you could, uh, you know, parlay this to use a horse racing term into a, an event uh, that you could sell tickets for, and 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 maybe some of the proceeds could, uh, you know, benefit, uh, you know, NFL players or former Giants players. I don't want to give you any ideas, but I can work with you in uh, suggesting some prime spots. Uh, but really, thank you for for joining me and and Zach on Conduct Detrimental today. Uh, this was my favorite. This goes down as my favorite interview and conversation I've ever had on, on the podcast. I could talk about Giants football and the 80s teams uh, all day long, which I think I tried to almost accomplish in keeping you on the podcast for over an hour. So <laughs> thanks for uh, thanks for being so generous with your time and sharing with us some of the stories and anecdotes uh, 
about some of these legendary figures of professional football. So Once a Giant, a story of victory, tragedy, and life after football by Gary Myers. You can get that on Amazon, Kindle, and at any bookstore in your neighborhood. Uh, look forward to talking to you again, Gary, uh, in the future. You're always welcome back to the podcast. Uh, uh, thanks again for sharing all these wonderful stories with us. Well, thanks for having me on, man. I always enjoy talking to you.